everybody. This is Mark. Welcome back to another episode of this Poor Pastors podcast. We're continuing on in our reconstruction series, and this week we're going to start laying some bricks. We've got a good foundation. It's time to start building up those walls. It's time to get you back in the game. But don't worry, I'm not going to put you in the deep end of the pool. Not to start with. We're going to take some steps today, some steps that are going to involve you identifying just exactly, or at least as close to exactly as possible, where God might want you to fit. It's all about puzzle pieces on today's episode of this Poor Pastors Podcast, coming to you directly in just a moment. Hold, please. Our youngest daughter, Amelia, is adopted. She has some educational and behavioral challenges, and that has been quite a challenge for me. One of the things that she has developed a a love for recently, which wasn't easy to start with, but she's really taken to it, is a love for puzzles. And she now regularly does puzzles of 500 pieces in no time flat. And she has been able to accomplish putting together 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles in pretty good order. She shows remarkable aptitude. I just took her to the library today where they have a large puzzle section. And she picked out a 500-piece puzzle and she picked out a 1,000-piece puzzle. She chose her own picture, what, what it is that she wanted the puzzle to look like. One of the things that was a struggle for her when we first tried to teach her how to do puzzles, and of course we started with the, you know, the 25 piece puzzles and so forth, but one of the things that was a struggle for, for her initially that unlocked the key, or was the key that unlocked the door, whatever the metaphor should be, was when she realized that she could look at the picture on the box and then look at the piece that she was holding in her hand and determine basically where it was supposed to go in the puzzle. And you, those of you who do puzzles understand that. One of the greatest parts of doing a puzzle is when everything is put together and the puzzle is finished. Have you ever done a puzzle saver? My wife and I have several puzzles that we have applied puzzle savers to. In fact, two of them hang in our bedroom, um, ones that we did many years ago when we were going through a puzzle phase, not that the phase we were in was puzzling, but we were in a phase of doing puzzles. And we chose ones kind of like the Thomas Kincaid style of puzzles. And we did a puzzle saver. I built custom frames to go around the puzzles and we hang them on the wall. I know that they're puzzles, but you know what happens when the puzzle is completely put together? It's the picture that emerges. It's the picture that matters. And there's something unique about multiple hundreds, if not thousands of pieces fitting together in only one correct way that create a picture. And we've hung it on on the wall in our bedrooms, both in the bedroom when we lived in North Carolina and on our bedroom now, and I love them. I enjoy them immensely. Do you know what is not enjoyable is when a piece of the puzzle is missing. My daughter picked up one puzzle today and it said one edge piece missing. 
And I told her, I said, look, this has everything except one of the edge pieces is missing. And she said, I don't want it. She liked the initial picture, but I get it. Like, I totally get it. There is nothing worse than getting to the end of a puzzle and finding out that one of the pieces is missing. Because then the picture isn't complete. It's not that that one missing piece is more important than the other pieces. It's that each and every piece is equally important. In fact, you might say, well, if a piece is missing, at least it was in an unimportant place. But there's nothing that is quite as dissatisfying as a puzzle that's missing pieces. I have friends and people that I know who have fallen out of regular church attendance or who are struggling with church attendance and their relationship with God and their relationship with believers because they don't know where they fit because they have seen uh, incorrect behavior on the part of church leaders. They've experienced some spiritual, emotional, or even physical trauma at the hands of someone who represented God. And I just want to say again and affirm that God takes an incredibly dim view of those who habitually and with intent destroy the flock of God. There's hardly a one of us that haven't offended against a brother or sister from time to time, and we need to ask forgiveness. That's part of being in the human condition. But I'm talking about people who, in positions of power and authority, willfully and with malice, hurt those whom God loves. One of the things that I've puzzled about for a while, and I'm still puzzling about, but I feel pretty confident that I know the answer is how God will respond to people who reject a caricature of God that isn't God. Now, I know we say, well, you can't get to heaven without trusting in Jesus. And if you don't believe in God, then you can't be saved. And I I believe that. I, I do understand that, at least in as far as it goes. But when we recognize that there are some people who the only thing they know of God came at the hands of people who abused God for their own purposes, who in the name of God brought pain, who in the name of God abused, who in the name of God destroyed, people who in the name of God broke down instead of built up. I don't know that we can say that the ones who walked away from that and are now bitter at, at, at God. It's not God necessarily that they're bitter at. It's, it's a representation of God that isn't God at all. And I hold out hope for those people, and I hurt for them, and my prayer is that I would always represent God as accurately as I am able to do. Just read the Old Testament prophets and even in the New Testament and you'll, find, and you'll find out how God feels about spiritual leaders of nations or churches or synagogues who destroy the flock. He'll punish those wicked leaders. 
And I want you to know that that day is coming when God is going to punish those who have hurt his flock, those who are unrepentant in their, in their sin and in their abuses. But that's up to God. We talked about that last week in our subject on forgiveness. I can't carry that. It's, I don't have the capacity to hold on to that sword. I need to give that pain to God and let that go. Not as if it didn't happen, but I need to give that to God, believing that he will make it right. And I'm not going to carry it. But a lot of people then feel like, well, you know, I don't like the way I was raised in church. I don't like, uh, I don't like the structure of church, and so I'm just going to walk away from it altogether. Still others say that since their harm happened in the community of believers, then the answer is that they can no longer be in a community of believers. Here's the thing, though. You can't, I said in church a few weeks ago, and then I had to come back and correct it. I said, you can't love the head and hate the body. And that is essentially a true statement, but in it is a, is a falsehood. And that is the idea that you can be outside the body. You can't be. You are part of the body of Christ if you are a believer. There is no way for you to cut yourself off from being a part of the body. You can certainly withhold fellowship from the rest of the body, but you can't cut yourself off from it. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church because you are part of the body of Christ. I mean, there's some bad theology that would cause you to say that anyway. You are part of the family of God. You have been grafted into the vine. You can't love the vine and act like you're not sharing in the life of the vine along with all of the other branches. We're a part of a body. The Bible says that God sets the solitary in families. God brings us in to communion with other believers. I know you want to know or maybe you're wondering what that has to do with the puzzle that I shared about at the beginning of this episode. I grew up in the Baptist faith. I'm still a Baptist today. I don't necessarily have a card that says that, and it's not as important to me as it used to be, but I'm a part of a Baptist church. Our church, it has the name Baptist on it. I don't care whether it does or whether it doesn't, but it does. So I'm being honest about that. I grew up in a very strong cessationist background. For many years now, I said that I would classify myself as a semi-cessationist. That is, I wasn't sure. It's, an, it's a way of saying I can't agree with the cessationist position, but I'm uncomfortable with saying that the gifts of the Spirit exist and so forth. And no, um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not moving this towards um, towards talking about, you know, what you think I'm going to talk about. But part of believing that we are in a body, part of believing that we are in a building is the recognition that we each have a part to play. As you begin working your way back toward God, 
I want you to understand that a part of that process will necessarily be working your way back toward a body of believers. Some of you feel like you're deconstructing and you're in a church right now. You're a member of a church, but you're not necessarily thrilled with where you are. Some of you are in a different church than the one that hurt you. Some of you are not in church at all. Some of you are in a different denomination than the one in which you began your deconstruction. So people are coming from lots of different places. But here, using the puzzle analogy, here is something that I want you to to recognize. And to do this, I need to take a quick excursus back into the history of God and his people. Going back at least as far, I think we could go all the way back in the garden and start this, but let's start at least in the in the Old Testament with Moses and the tabernacle. And you had the tabernacle of God built by Moses, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and you had a class of people, the Levites and the family of Aaron, who served as priests and ministers in the tabernacle. And then you had the presence of God, the spirit of God that would uh, descend and fill the tabernacle. And there would be a cloud or a pillar of fire and the people would follow it. They were outside of it, but they would follow it as it moved them around. So they were following God. He was outside of them, but they were following him. And his spirit filled the tabernacle. Moving forward then, by the way, it was always visible. You always knew when the presence of God and the spirit of God was in the tabernacle or on the tabernacle. They always knew. Then you have Solomon's temple. And at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of God, the presence of God descended and filled the temple. And it was, I imagine, one of the most amazing sights that you could have ever hoped to see. I'm hoping that there's still a DVD laying around in eternity when I, and maybe I can get a chance to see that. But it's quite, uh, it's quite a description found in the Old Testament of the glory of God filling the temple. Then you have that second temple after the Babylonian and Persian captivity. You have the second temple that's built, and you have that with Ezekiel and then the walls under Nehemiah and Ezra, not Ezekiel, but Ezra rather, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And you have uh, one of the saddest things is that the second temple that's built after Solomon's temple is destroyed and the glory of God departs from Israel. The second temple is destroyed, or the second temple is built rather, and it is built at least in part. But one of the saddest things is that the glory of God doesn't fill that tabernacle. It doesn't fill the temple like it, like it did in, in Solomon's time. And even heading up into the second uh, temple period in Herod's temple in the time of Jesus, you didn't have the, the spirit of God, the presence of God, the glory of God. In fact, one of the, one of the most amazing things is the story in Luke chapter two, when the glory of God shone round about them and they were sore afraid because people weren't as used to seeing the glory of God like they had in the temp in the temple under Solomon and so the glory of God shone in the heavens 
But the, the temple in Jesus' day lacked that Shekinah glory, that glory of God. The, the, the presence of God was so absent that you could even have a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, in that worship area, and, um, and be able to be there without any problem until he came face-to-face with Jesus, who was there, and then he couldn't, he couldn't remain there. So the Spirit of God was absent. And there was a longing. There was a looking for the presence of God. In the book of Joel, chapter number two, Joel had prophesied that there was coming a day when though the presence of God had been removed and the glory of God had been removed, there was coming a day when God was going to do a new thing. And he was going to pour out his spirit, not upon a building, but upon all flesh. And there would be all kinds of activity related to this um, to this outpouring of the of the spirit, all the things that God did would be done by these people. There would be visions and dreams and uh, speaking in other tongues. There would be uh, healings and manifestations of the spirit of God. When the spirit of God manifested, you see all of these things being done in the person of Jesus Christ, where the power of God rested on him, and Jesus went and he did miracles, good works everywhere that he did that he went. Went so much that John says, I mean, with obviously a bit of hyperbole, but that there were there weren't enough books in the world to contain everything that uh, that 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 Jesus did. And that's not to be taken literally, by the way. I mean, Jesus walked during a finite period of time on the shores of Galilee, but it was like when you when you when you had such an amazing experience and you told someone, I couldn't even begin to tell you everything that happened. Well, of course you could if you had the time, but it's it's speaking of the overwhelming nature and the and the extent of it that it would just take too long. Just and so we summarize. And so John summarized in John's gospel, and he said, I'm just writing these things so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you might have life through his name. Jesus himself said that he was going to send the promise of the Father, which was something that the people of Israel had been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, descended. And one of the things that happened that was uniquely different in the New Testament economy was that instead of the glory of God, the Spirit of God dwelling in a building, it dwelled in the body and in the community of believers. So the New Testament tells us that that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in the temple made up of the gathering of believers and as individual believers, as individual temples. Both of those things are true, that I, as part of the temple of God, uh, have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in me as like a mini temple, and then all the little mini temples um, uh, you know, gather together to make, uh, to make a habitation for God. You can read that in Ephesians. Uh, so that when the believers gather together, the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the person of Jesus Christ are manifested. It is made obvious in that place as well. But that it doesn't end there. When there is a dispersion of the, of the congregation, each member takes with them the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in their personal little temple. The sad thing is a lot of people who deconstruct but don't leave the faith 
uh, make the mistake of thinking that that little temple that is themselves is all that's necessary. Like me and Jesus, that's it. But that's that would be inaccurate for one very important reason. And that is this. In the Old Testament, in Solomon's temple and in the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit in his fullness descended on the tabernacle and descended on the temple. But in the New Testament, while the Holy Spirit fills each and every believer, I believe the Bible teaches that God only imparted certain gifts to each individual member so that it requires the, quote, body of believers to manifest God in clarity to the world around us. Think of, if you will, each believer as an individual puzzle piece. Each believer is important. And so Paul uses the analogy of a body and eyes and ears and hands and feet. And there's, there's the analogy of a building with each stone that we're, that we're built together for a house for God. God moves in when the house is completed, and so God is there. Whatever was going on in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul said that they would, they would be, the, the unbelievers who came in would fall to their knees and confess that God is in you of a truth, that something that happened at the gathering together of believers would cause a manifestation of God. And I think the best way for you to understand this is that idea of the puzzle piece. That each of us together have unique and special gifts of the Spirit. Spiritual gifts, however you want to parse them out, spiritual gifts are given to each individual member so that no member is unimportant because each member has a part in manifesting the presence and power of God to the world around us and in the community of believers. Now, I'm, so I'm talking to some people who are, who are sitting in a church and you're struggling with what to do or where to go. My question to you would be this. Do you know and are you aware of how God has uniquely gifted you as a puzzle piece to fit in the greater picture? Because if you are not actively living and moving in the gifting that God has given to you, then you are not participating. It doesn't mean you don't have one. You may not be aware of it. And many of us were raised in a context in which, and I'll get to that in a minute, but in a context where because of the cessationist view of spiritual gifts, the importance of scripture, which is fine, and the elevation of the office of pastor and deacons only, many people came to church um, without any knowledge that they had a part to play in manifesting the power and presence of God in the in the congregation and in the world and in the world and community around them. But the truth of the matter is this, and here's the here's the analogy. And if you have a puzzle in your house, go and look at it, and and this will become even more obvious to you. When my daughter starts a puzzle, there is a pile of pieces in the center of the floor. Every bit of the picture that that puzzle represents is there in totality, assuming none of the pieces are missing. And there's, you know, there's an analogy there, right? But assuming none of the pieces are missing. 
All of the picture is present, but it is not visible. Only bits and pieces on individual pieces. Now, as the puzzle begins to be assembled, more of the picture starts to emerge, but as you are assembling a puzzle, different parts and different pieces of the puzzle become very important. You're looking for the piece that has that little bit of red just on the tip and, and a yellow stripe across the other side uh, between, you know, and you have the parts that, that protrude and the parts that cut in on these jigsaw puzzle pieces. And so you're looking and that becomes very important. There becomes quite an emphasis on that puzzle piece. Now, once you find that puzzle piece and you place it in the puzzle, its importance as far as our attention is concerned diminishes and we begin looking for other puzzle pieces. However, something amazing happens. The moment that the last puzzle piece is placed in the puzzle, something amazing happens. And that is that the importance of the individual puzzles fade. As the manifestation of a completed image emerges. When a puzzle is complete, it is the picture that takes preeminence, not the puzzle pieces. And in healthy communities of faith, It is the image of God, the presence of God, the face of Jesus Christ that becomes preeminent, not the individual puzzle pieces. So Paul said, God gives gifts to every man. The Holy Spirit divides gifts to every person for the edification and building up of the body. And as the body comes together in completeness, it is the picture, the person of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, his face that becomes the preeminent thing so that no one of us is uh, outshining the other. And I want you to know, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more next week because I'm already out of time, but I want you to know, loved one, that you have a very special part to play in manifesting the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, and the power of God in the community of faith in which you are either involved in or the one that you ought to be. And if you are going to a church where you are not aware or and there is no way for you to uh, exercise or walk in the gifting that God has given to you then that may be part of the frustration and the disconnected feeling that you that you're experiencing you've got a couple of puzzle pieces standing on the platform proclaiming that they're the most important puzzle pieces and that, that a thousand uh, piece jigsaw puzzle is hopelessly incomplete when there's just a few puzzle pieces walking around telling all the other 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 puzzle pieces how important they are not the other puzzle pieces but the few puzzle pieces that are loudmouths. The body of Christ and the gifts of the Spirit are not manifested in any one individual or small group of individuals in totality. Do you know why? Because God intended that he would dwell in his people and that it would be in their gathering and exercise of those gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit can do all of those things, but no one person has all the gifts because no one person is more important than the Spirit, than Christ himself. 
And so it is when we gather and each piece is in its place. And each piece is important. Even the edge pieces and the pieces that are all in the shadows. Every piece is important. And as each and every piece fits into place, the image of God is manifested in our presence. And the world sees Christ in our communities. Most of you listening grew up in a context where the only important puzzle pieces in your, bo- in your local body, in your local assembly, the only important one was the pastor and deacons. Because after all, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, according to their interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, ceased at the, at the, uh, at the uh, writing, the completing of the canon of Scripture. And then at the interpretation or translation of the King James Bible in 1611, that was it. So, so God doesn't need spiritual gifts anymore. We have the word of God. And so now the only people that seem to be gifted are the pastor, a few evangelists, maybe a deacon or two, but we're not sure about them. And that some people have a natural aptitude for teaching. But really the most important, let's be honest, the most important person in most cessationist churches is the pastor. And it's also true that in many of our churches, there's more devil than God being manifested. And I'm not trying to be inflammatory there, but they're, they're one of the reasons that so much hurt is happening and so many people are walking away is because you have a couple of loud puzzle pieces telling everyone else that they're not actually important. That they gather together on Sunday and they get dumped into a heap, but there's no there's no attempt or teaching at, at understanding how we all fit together and what part each has to play. Because the dirty little secret is some of you sitting in the pews have spiritual giftings that the pastor doesn't have, and that's not a slight on him at all. Pastor, listen to me, please. I am one of you. I implore you to consider how you are stewarding your responsibility at helping people to understand and develop and use their spiritual gifts for the edifying of the body of Christ and so that the power of God can rest upon us and that the image of Christ can manifest in our midst like a puzzle piece. When all the pieces are present, the individual pieces equally important fade into the background as the picture becomes the primary and preeminent focus. And as you're reconstructing and rebuilding your faith, I want you to do two things. Two things. And we're going to end with this. One, ask yourself, what are my spiritual gifts? If you want to read about them, you can read about them in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Peter 4. What is my spiritual gift? Secondly, am I currently using it? Or is there a place for me to use it in my local assembly? And if not, how can I begin to use it? Because I promise you, loved ones, God has given you something special. Not to lord over the other puzzle pieces, but to say, hey, we need each other. I'm important. You are important because you're part of the temple of God. And as the Holy Spirit of God 
was poured out and given to individual believers, he gives us gifts that when used in conjunction and in correlation with other puzzle pieces, manifests more and more clearly with each passing day the power, presence, and person of Jesus Christ, both to the members of the community and the world at large. I can't wait to talk to you about this a little bit more next week. If you have any questions about that, reach out thispoorpastor at gmail.com or text me, area code 910-265-7297. God bless you. Have a great week. I'll see you next time.